Hey folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. I feel humbled today to introduce this gentleman. And Chris Wilson has a story that, uh, yeah, is, is difficult to comprehend in some ways. Life imprisonment, uh, decided to create something around a master plan in prison, had been through tremendous experience of trauma through before he got to prison, then when he was at prison. Uh, and he never denies what he did, but what he, he did after he got into prison is a story that uh, is inspirational, but his, his passion now is to help all those who are suffered like him or in the same place. And you'll hear a story about some of the things he's doing, some of the, thing, the problems he's faced, and also just the uplifting view about where he's come to and, and how he is now living his, his life. He's living his master plan. And if you listen carefully today, there's the story of the judge who worked with them and risked her career um, to give him that opportunity. And I'm always a big believer that people in your life who are put in there to give you the opportunity, he took his. Uh, so I'd love you to listen to the story about that Chris is going to tell us today. And uh, yeah, lovely to hear your feedback afterwards. So tell me about the hats, the choices. Yeah. Oh yeah. So uh, I am a, a big hat person. I, I love to to wear a cool hat with a feather. Uh, yeah. This this particular hats are bellies, uh, but I have uh, a, a fleet of hats. A fleet that, of um, hats. Is that an official term? A fleet it, of hats. It's not. It's not a, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to use it. But yeah, so I'm I'm actually like known for that. Just you know, the guy with you know paint on his pants. And a cool hat. Painting his pants with a cool hat. I love it. Yeah, that's usually, that's usually how I'm, um, I'm recognized. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I'm, I tell you what, if I've got paint in my pants, uh, my <laughs> wife is going to kill me because <laughs> I am the worst painter in the world. I'm just messy. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Chris, uh, great to have you on here on the Leadership Tales podcast. Thanks. Tell the listeners who you are, background, apart from messy pants and an amazing yeah. hat, who are you? Sure, absolutely. So I am a visual artist, an author, and philanthropist who splits his time from uh, between Miami, Baltimore, and New York. Uh, I was uh, born in Washington, D.C., and grew up under difficult circumstances back in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, where I was losing a lot of friends to gun violence. The, the crack epidemic was sweeping through my community. It was the war on drugs. Mm. My mom was in an abusive relationship with the police officer. And so we had to deal with a lot of stuff at home and out in our community. And unfortunately, I lost friends. I lost family members. Uh, and one day my mom and I was attacked by this police officer who she stopped seeing. Uh, and he sexually assaulted my mom. He beat us up uh, and lost his job because of it. But when he got out of jail, he started stalking our family. And so I started carrying a gun. Hmm. And this was around the time that my brother and cousin were shot in front of the house. Uh, my brother survived, but my cousin passed away. And then they came after me next. And I ended up taking a person's life. I was 17 years old. I was charged as an adult and sentenced to natural life in prison. And so when I first went to prison, I fell into a deep depression for my first two years. I couldn't believe that they would throw my life away. 
I was 118 pounds, didn't even have a mustache on my face. And they had told me that I would grow old and die in prison. And it was around this time that I had met someone who also had a life sentence. Uh, and he was working really hard on teaching himself computer programming. He had this plan and this belief uh, that if he worked really hard, that he can make it home one day and be successful. And I thought he was crazy at first. I, I, I laughed at him, I remember. Hmm. And he says, you know, we have everything taken away from us, but no one can take away the knowledge that we put in our minds. And he says, this is how I'll be free one day and I'll pay it forward. And that really clicked with me. And I went back to my cell and I wrote up uh, a two page uh, bucket list, or, or I call it my master plan of all the things I wanted to do with my life, how I wanted to get a college degree. I wanted to learn Spanish. I wanted to get a high school diploma. I wanted to be a successful entrepreneur. I wanted to buy all my dream cars, a black Corvette convertible, a black Ferrari. Now and you're I, talking. I write a book one day. Yeah, <laughs> so I sent it to my judge and my grandmother and they became my accountability partners. And so I worked really hard for about a decade in prison and got my high school diploma, college degree, taught myself Spanish, Italian, went on to learn Mandarin and became a mentor helping other people. And finally, I got a second chance to get uh, to live my life. And the judge told me that I had to finish everything on the plan that I had sent her. And so I've been home now for 10 years. I, I ended up serving 16 and a half years in prison. I've been home now for 10, over 10. Um, I've started several companies. I've became an artist. I've published my book, The Master Plan, which I, I'm very proud of. It's my, my, my life's work. Uh, and I'm paying it forward by mentoring and helping people through my fo uh, foundation by helping people change their mindset. I believe all of us have a uh, potential. Some people's uh, potential is just untapped and they can't find that switch. And so we help people find that switch. And when I'm not doing that, I'm making art and I'm traveling all around the world. Whoa. We could just end it there, drop the mic and go, what what a story. But I'd love to dig into some of them, the, yeah. the pieces, because for the majority of people listening, like myself, who have never experienced half of what you just talked about, if not, you know, a third of it. I want to dig into a couple of things because that piece, a number of people can associate with depression, but depression yeah. in that type of institution, place, and how, and it seems like I met somebody, I moved on quickly, but there's there's depth to that. Do you want to take us into a bit of the depth of what happened when you first in there two years and how it changed? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the depression was, was a real thing and it took me a few years in therapy while incarcerated to really understand what trauma actually was, what it does to your body. I didn't understand why I was having nightmares and why I was so hypervigilant, why all of us were like that. And I started to realize and learn that people who grow up in particular environments uh, and experience tra traumatic experiences, uh, it, it plays a toll on you. It changes you. And so I started learning more about myself through therapy uh, and I started talking about stuff I've been through and people in my group started talking about their experiences. And we realized that we all went through similar um, experiences and it still happens to this day. And so it helped me, therapy helped me learn about myself and, and learn how to grow and understand, and understand the world a little better. So talk to me about the environment when you go in there, because one of your big campaign pieces is that people are just almost buried in there. They're, you know, the cost of actually incarcerating versus people yeah. versus the opportunity yes. that we give them. Talk a bit about that. It, it is, it is, I often describe it as being teleported to another planet. There's no privacy. 
Uh, everyone is yelling and screaming all day and banging on doors and it's violence constantly. And you're expected to rehabilitate yourself in this environment, which is a big mm. challenge. And, you know, I just had to figure out ways how to how to mind my business when so much stuff was going on around me and just focus on who I was as a person and, and, and come up with a plan. And, and for my for me, it was through education, through therapy. But it was a lot of stuff going on. Some people committed suicide. Some of my friends did. Some people overdosed from from drugs and heroin. And there, um, it's just everything that you could think of uh, was in there. It was it's, it's a different it's a different planet, a different uh, universe, different rules. You're treated a certain kind of way. You expect people on the outside expect for there to be programming. There are some programming. Really, the prisons that I grew up in were all about punishment. How do we punish you? How do we... Um, yeah, it was just about punishment. And so that was the challenge. And I, I had to... I call it a positive delusion in my book. I had to believe that all my hard work would pay off and that I would be free one day and then I could I could execute and benefit off of all the study and start a company and and be able to uh, you know get a book published and and do some good in the world. Amazing. And the the two people you mentioned there, the other person who helped you to 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 work through that because that yeah. again we all need a guide. And then the judge. I want to explore those relationships because yeah. we all need those people. And was it by luck or judgment that you met these people? You know, the judge obviously not, but the first person. You know, what was yeah, it? I think I think it was luck or it was the universe or whoever yeah. God, whoever you want to credit. Um, and I'm still friends with him. He had life. It took him 20 years. He came home two years after me. His name's uh, mm. Stephen Edwards. He, uh, he came home eventually uh, and we're still good friends. He started his software company. He brought his dream cars. His cars aren't as cool as mine, but he got, <laughs> he got his cars. But I'll we, get him on the podcast next and yeah. we can see if it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we, we talk often about this, about how mm. lucky and how blessed we are to have, um, you know, built relationships with each other. And then my judge, I am friends with my judge now and I, I do work alongside of her. And mm. I asked her questions. Uh, about like, why would she risk her career to give me a second chance? And she had told me that she had heard and seen every kind of BS story that people can like make up and say like, you know, I won't mess up again. She said, but you actually put in the work. You didn't get in any trouble. You went to school, you got your degrees, you got, you learned all the trades and then you started mentoring other people. So she said, I feel like you have been rehabilitated. And so I'm gonna let you out. And uh, she said, she told me that she was proud that she made that decision. And so I also think about, all of those relationships of people who helped me when I was inside and made me uh, the person that I am today. And I try to make sure I do the right thing, even when no one's watching, uh, just so I won't let people down or let myself down in particular. I mean, I, I love the uh, Saving Private Ryan scene at the end where the guy asks, have I, have I ever been a good man? Have I every day, do I live it? And it, it, that's that judge risked her career, but did yeah. you? A service in there. I'm hearing faith as well is a big part of that. Yeah, to, totally. Yeah. So there were situations while in prison where I just, I mean, a decade had went by, I couldn't get out. And I just started going to my cell at night and just talking to God. And it's like, mm. I just, I've heard stories about you giving people signs. I need my sign. And I did mm. this for two weeks. And then I got a court date. It was, it was incredible. I had been denied five times before that. And then the mm -hmm. sixth time, even my lawyer was confused. He says, I have no idea what happened, yeah. but you got a court date. 
Yeah, and and I suppose a lot of this is what we preach, but not in those extreme circumstances. Which yeah. is, you know, if you do the if you do your hard work, if you eat, we call it eating your own dog foods, to you know, drinking your own champagne, whatever you want to call it. But if you do the work and put it in, right, then things come to you. So, and you're yeah. a living, breathing example of that. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I think the other thing is, too, that I always say I was putting in a lot of work on self-improvement, but I was just putting I was putting all that effort into myself. And when I started thinking about other people around me and thinking about the community and how I could tutor people uh, in prison and, and start workshops to help people, that's that's when the blessings came tenfold. And so I think that's really important, too, that. Your hard work shouldn't just be about you. It should be about your community, your environment around you, how you can make it better. Being a better citizen, as my friend John Alexander would say, and how to yeah. citizen is so important. So um, I want to dig into what you're doing outside now in terms of, because I, I think there's a mentoring piece, the business. Yes. The serial entrepreneur is, yes. is a man after my own heart, but it, yes. you know, what are you doing in there? Yeah. So, so in 2020, I shut down my, my companies. I had a furniture company and a, a construction uh, company, which I had for about eight, eight years, both companies. Uh, I had started painting sort of by accident while in business school, and I was doing work for a lot of artists, moving their art around. And I just somehow fell in love with it. And I just started painting and painting. And I started selling my work and I started traveling and studying around the world in Italy and Barcelona and Paris. And then COVID hit. And I, I had caught COVID and got really sick. Uh, and I almost died actually twice because mm -hmm. I was one of the first people to catch COVID. Oh. And then as I started to recover, I just started painting more. I just stayed during the lockdown and started making uh, making art. And uh, a year before, I had started a foundation because I wanted to invest uh, in, in prison education, financial literacy, and art-related programs. And so I started doing that. But my painting career accelerated in 2020, and I started doing shows in different places uh, the following years. And, and now I just make art. And then I am uh, executive director for my foundation, the Chris Wilson Foundation. And one of the things I was thinking about, well, I kept getting calls and letters from people in prison and they kept saying, I, I, I want to turn my life around. What's the move? What should I do? What should I be reading? Like, what kind of people should I be surrounding myself with? And I still get hundreds of letters uh, like this. And mm -hmm. so what I decided to do was take some of my art proceeds hire some people, some really, really smart people, way smarter than me from Harvard and from Brown. And I said, I want to create kind of a masterclass course, a 12 unit course that is taught over uh, 13 weeks uh, that deals with trauma, that deals with your rock bottom moments, that talks about systemic racism, that talks about uh, developing self-agency over your over your life and, and, and helping people understand that the decisions that you make today can change the course of your future. And so I'm really excited. It's art weaved all through the program. And there's video instructions of me uh, speaking to uh, the learners. There's uh, curated TED Talk videos that I encourage people to walk, watch. There are reading lists. Uh, there's homework assignments. Hmm. Uh, you have to write a letter to your future self. I love it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. all kinds of things in there, which is which is really, really uh, cool. And so 20,000 people uh, across the United States are currently taking my course right now. It's wow. been amazing. Uh, and those are 20,000 incarcerated? Or? Yeah, 20,000 yeah. incarcerated, but there are people on the outside taking the course now. We created uh, uh, two more uh, facilitated courses 
Uh, one is a low literacy, high interest kind of workbook that's facilitated by formerly incarcerated uh, people. I paid them really well. I paid them $50 an hour. Uh, mm-hmm. And we just created an officer's training program that helps uh, correctional officers uh, understand trauma, uh, help them not to bring wow. their drama to work and take it out on people uh, incarcerated. Uh, we teach about how to de-escalate in a situation, de-escalation, which is really important. So yeah, th- that's the work that I'm doing today. And I got to tell you, I-, I told my therapist this last week. I- I'm-, I'm really happy. I think my master plan is almost 100% complete. All I have to do now is just stay focused, stay in my lane. Yeah. And a, a couple of things that I want to explore, because I heard you talk on a, uh, an interview and I, I never fully appreciated this, but I, you know, you get access to reading materials and, you know, you think back to Shawshank Redemption for most yeah. of us, we go and, and reading material, but, but the barriers that are put in the way of people in prisons to read is just, I, I never even thought about it, but it's massive, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. And it's, it's, it's very suspicious to me because it, it is a fact and there's science behind it that proves that even a little bit of education reduces recidivism. People start to think differently, mm-hmm. having access to it. But the fact that it's oftentimes denied of incarcerated people is very suspicious to me. And how do you expect someone to get out and be a productive citizen and, and, and have a career if they don't have access to information and knowledge uh, and, and do this? And so, you know, People often ask me about the prison industrial complex, and I always say that slavery never really went away. It just metamorphosized itself into what we see today. This is a business now. Keep the beds filled. I think there's there's something in here because you think about the drug war and a lot of the uh, the work in there that I've been reading about, and I, you know I have no experience of it. I only read about it, and then you yeah. start to think about the incarceration piece. There's some. It's big business. It's cost. Yeah, it's profits. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's things like access to iPads, you know, yeah. you have to pay for the access to the iPads and then you have yeah. to pay for the book. So you have to pay for everything. You yeah. have to pay for your phone calls. You have to pay for your family to send you money. And this is what happens. The family members of incarcerated people bear uh, the burden of, of this and these private prisons and companies that uh, make billions of dollars off of, off of incarcerated people and give kickbacks to politicians to make sure laws are passed so that beds stay filled, that people are sentenced to more time so they make more money. And for the business case argument, the cost of incarcerating somebody for a year versus small investments is yeah. part of what you're you're talking yeah. about here. It makes no sense. And, and some, some people will argue, well, why give folks like education and access to therapy when my child is in debt now and, and, and in college? But but oftentimes these are people who have been dealt a bad hand. And if we're already paying for the incarceration, a better return for taxpayers dollars is to provide education so they get out and they don't go back because it costs tons of money to incarcerate a person and when someone reoffends or go back or gets violated. And so it just makes economically, it just makes sense to, to provide education. It's good for all of us. And it actually protects the public. I love that. And I love that when I was listening to your interview there, that that, that came to life. Because I, I think there is something, you know, for a number of people who are listening, who are business commercial people who don't have an experience of what it's like, you start to go, so where's the opportunity? I was working with somebody who's a mentor for um, ex-prisoners. Yeah. Um, and again, 
doesn't talk like me, doesn't look like me, but one of the most amazing people because of his experience and what he could do. But, but his blockage for me was, and it goes back to something you were saying, you were able to set up a company, yeah. but to get funding and support for that when you're an, an ex-prisoner is tough, isn't it? Yeah, it's very tough. It's almost impossible, but, it, but, it's, but it's not impossible. But mm-hmm. yeah, and I, and I write about that in my book about the challenges that I faced and my company was growing really fast. I had contracts with with, uh, with the government, uh, with public city schools, and I needed to make payroll. and And no one would give me a line of credit. No one would, would deal with me because I had been incarcerated. So going back to now, and you know all this stuff that you've come through, and that I'm looking at somebody who's got this most amazing hat, and obviously <laughs> it's got the, you know, the whatever your schmuck or whatever you call yeah, it, you're going to do yeah. your painting. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So tell me a bit about now and the the art, because if your master plan is almost finished, firstly, the obvious question is, so what now? I think about this all the time, actually. I'm in my warm spot. I just want to do what I'm doing now. Art has freed me. And I put in my journal this morning, actually, it's funny. uh, I said, even if I didn't make money off of making art, it's the process of it. It's Mm. it's cathartic. It's it's therapy for me. Uh, It's soothing. And I just would do it anyway. Uh, But but. I do. I do sell my art. I do tell powerful stories through my art. And it just allows me to to do impactful things in my community. The people who work for me uh, mm-hmm. at my companies uh, are funded through my art. Uh, <laughs> and I, I collect I started collecting art, too. I just think it's a beautiful, a beautiful space that I found myself in. And I just want to make sure that I stay humble and I stay true to the work that we're doing. And so as long as. You know, I'm gonna live my good life. I brought my dream cars. I got my Corvette convertible. I got my Ferrari convertible. I got a nice house. I'm on the water. I got. I'm surrounded by amazing people. And yeah, I, maybe I'll add some stuff to my master plan. But it's it's 98 complete. And I just, you know, I also told my therapist. I said if I if a comet was coming to wipe us out tomorrow, or if, if it was my time to die tomorrow, I would die happy. And I think that's all we all we strive for is to be happy in our lives. And so I'm happy. I couldn't say more. I, I do a lot of work on the Stoics and that's, yeah. you know, got to December last year, which is the darkest time of the year here for us. Oh. You know, it's the where my mental faculties are starting to search for spring and warmth and everything else. But yeah. but it was fascinating because reflection on your own death. Uh, a lot of people don't do it, but actually yeah. when you get to that point, it's saying, so am I ready? Have I done what I want to do? And it's, you know, yeah. it's getting out there and doing it. So yeah. tell us about your art then. Tell us what is, what, how would you describe it? Cause I've got a piece of art behind you. So for those who are yeah. not watching that, yeah. Tell us. About yeah. It. So, so this is actually, uh, actually sort of a morbid uh, piece behind me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a sculptural piece right here. Nice. I, I, I make a lot of art about my past experiences. This big piece behind me is uh, about my little brother and I going to my mother's funeral. Uh, and so I keep this one in my home. It's not for sale. Uh, mm-hmm. But I make a lot of art about political or, or system failures or, or, or stuff like the 94 crime bill that was put in place and locked up hundreds of thousands of people in the United States. I, I make art about the opioid epidemic. Um, I, I did a series of abstract paintings. I had went to the Middle East uh, and spent some time over there in Israel and in Palestine and the West Bank. And it wow. was two terrorist attacks when I was over there. It was all kinds of stuff happening. And I did a series of paintings about my experience over there. 
I did the same thing in Italy when I went into uh, to Palermo and Sicily in the mountains. Uh, and I, I went to places where black people uh, wasn't supposed to go. Yeah. Uh, but like I happened to speak Italian and like knew some people and they gave me a pass. Uh, I guess all these experiences, I try to put them into canvases uh, and in my art and my personal relationships. I usually make art about that. So usually everything that uh, I'm working on is about something. There's some story behind it, some provenance. Mm, I love it. And, and you could hold on to so much of your past, which is in some ways is a useful thing. And there's certain things that are not useful. So tell me about the changes that you've gone through, the things you hold on to that you maybe picked up from your mother for other places yeah. and the things that you go, you know, I need to leave yeah. this behind. It's not helpful. That's a good question. So I, I write about how my relationship changed with my mom, but over the years through therapy, I realized that hurt people tend to hurt people. So mm. I've forgiven my mom for, for what, how she treated me towards the end of her life. And so I choose to remember her by the positive um, memories of her teaching me about entrepreneurship, about her teaching me, uh, uh, etiquette and how and, and treating women nice and being polite and and d- dinner etiquette like all kinds of things that mm-hmm. my mom taught me I still I still um, remember uh, and fo- follow the rules so to speak yeah. and so I, I think about I think about stuff like that I think about all the advice that my grandfather and grandmother would give me when I was young when I was hard headed and didn't understand what they were trying to tell me mm-hmm. but essentially they were saying we're giving you more chores. We give you more things to do because we want to prepare you for your future and you need to be ready. And I said, I don't understand like <laughs> what no. it means. Yeah. And then they tell me, they, they, my, my family would tell me stories about how it was when they grew up. And they said, we didn't go through all of this for you to dishonor the family's name. And so now as a 44 year old man, I feel like I have a responsibility to represent my family I have a responsibility to represent my people, my community, where I come from. Uh, and I have a responsibility to, to set an example for people who may be watching, uh, like what I'm doing. And I like like I said earlier, I want to be able to, when it's my time, to think about my legacy and what people say about me when I'm not here. And I would hope that people would say he was a good man. He, he paid it forward. Um, very caring and generous person. And like, that's all I can ask for. And I think my, my family would be proud of that. Amazing. Amazing story, sir. I love your story. I want to finish with three questions because okay. we could go on and on and on. And, you know, so, at some point course. I need to buy a piece of your art, but yeah. I want to find the story that resonates to me. So I need to okay. dig into that at some point. But it, um, what's the one small, yeah, the small memorable moment that's shaped your leadership career? Yeah. I think um, there was there was a there was a moment where uh, I had ran out of money. Uh, I was doing a job like it, it was a big snowstorm, and six of my employees had quit. They, like it was so cold. It was like the worst storm we we ever um, had. And I had been up for thirty three hours. We were doing snow removal through my contracting company, and. Mm-hmm. I was about to run out of money. My snowblower had like broke. I, I didn't have the equipment and I pulled over on the side of the road. I was tired and I had a nervous breakdown. I was shaking. I started crying and I called one of my uh, uh, advisors, business advisors in the middle of the night. And I was like, just tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. And he told me, he says, I'm glad you called because all, all entrepreneurs and business people 
successful business people have all been through this, this scenario. And he says, you know, there's things that you just need to remember that you got to you need to call your clients and tell them how you're going to solve it. And it's like, I don't know how to how to solve it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I'm gonna help you solve it. And so he helped me. He you know, he loaned me some money. He helped me get a, a snowblower machine like to finish mm-hmm. my job. Uh, and I was able to, to finish this contract. And so the lesson that I learned uh, about leadership is that. You know, I, I usually I call it my, my personal board of advisors. I always I always have really wise, smart people uh, in my orbit that I can rely on in times of, of challenges. And like people always well, some people say, yeah, I'm self-made. Like no one no one gets to the finish line by themselves. You always got to have a group of people that can help you get through to the finish line. And so that's that's one of the lessons of leadership, even even though people report to me, I have counsel. Uh, above me that helps me navigate my life and my business. Mm, love that. We've got our own advisory board, my own advisory board. It's yes. painful because, yes. you know, they're not always helping you. They're always yeah. going, so what are you doing? And I'm like, I, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Those answers are tough. I love it. So if you could disrupt one thing in leaders at the moment, what would it be about their style, behavior, habits? What would it be? I think um, the, the need the need for, for profit there's so many leaders is like the bottom line, especially in the corporate industry. The, the, uh, you always hear the word of like impact and, and social entrepreneurship, but I rarely hear, I rarely see actual uh, leaders practicing what they preach. Rarely. Mm-hmm. Some people do. Mm-hmm. I wish I could disrupt that. I wish, I wish impact wasn't just how much money some a company made. I, I think that's the wrong way to look at it. And I'm oftentimes trying to talk to these funders and leaders about impact and, and, and impacting people's lives specifically. And they're just saying, well, how much money will we, can we get off of this? And if it's $10 million, it's not enough. And it's just, I hear it so much. And I just wish that the, the bottom line wasn't just profit. Yeah. We could do so much more in the world. Agreed. And the impact piece of cautious capitalism, even, even yeah. if it's the bottom line, how long is that bottom line? That Even that social care is, is right. a key part of it. I love that. Final one then, one leadership habit. I, I have a feeling it might be painting, but I'm just going to check it. But what's the one leadership habit that's non-negotiable for you? Yeah, I am a lifelong reader. So I tend to read uh, a new book every week and or uh, do YouTube videos or certain podcasts. I'm always working my brain. Hmm. So that's one, th- that's one thing I will never compromise on is I'm always uh, going to learn something new. I'm studying French right now too, so it's like, I'm always challenging my brain. Yeah, I, just, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. It's the only language I speak, so don't even try me in Italian. Uh, yeah, uh, but I don't even speak it. So, so if you had a one book at the moment, what would be your recommendation? Uh, I'm going to flip slightly off that. What's your recommendation of a good book? A good book besides my book? Yeah, oh, both, of course, both from yours. Which yeah, we're just about to plug in a second. Oh, <laughs> I think I think a good book that I really love that I can recommend is uh, "Made the Stick," and it's mm. about how I did stick. And I think the author is Chief and Dan Heath. I think they're brothers. Yeah, very yeah. good book. I love that book. No, it's one of mine. Yeah, uh, top list as well. So I love that. Yeah. I, I've. Uh, Chris, I've loved this conversation. It's been it's been brilliant. If people want to find out more about you, whether your foundation or everything else, where would they go to find out more yeah, about I you? I think to, to learn more uh, about the work that we do to the foundation is chriswilsonfoundation.com. Uh, I also encourage uh, people to follow me on Instagram, Chris Wilson's Life. 
all my art endeavors and, and business nice. endeavors and speaking engagements. And of course, uh, follow me on LinkedIn. And I've got to get a plug for your hat. So where did you get your hat and where can no, I'm only joking. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that. Hat. It's just yeah, brilliant. If I, if I can find a Celtic sized hat, I'm going to keep trying. As you say, yeah, I'm going to just trying, keep trying. Yes. Um, amazing story, sir. Thank you for sharing it today and your Hello. learnings inspirationally and in, in what you're talking about here. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for having me. What a conversation. <laughs> what a guy. Uh, it's that moment where you're you're listening and you're thinking, so how would I have reacted? How would I have dealt with the, the trauma, as he called it, that he went through? And how would he how would I have responded and done uh, things same differently? Uh, and for me, there's uh, some powerful lessons in there around the humility, uh, the spirit that uh, took him to get through there. But also for me, the biggest thing is the one, two or three people that come along that support you. So the name of the gentleman who uh, was there, Stephen, who, who helped him to start with, and then the judge who risked a career. But then you've got to take your opportunity. And I love the fact that he is now thriving. He's got his arts, he's got his passion. And you can hear in his voice, that he's still got humble humility in, in his bones. And also you can hear that he's still got this passion to, to give back. And the final thing I loved is his, you know, if I died now, I would have done what I needed to do. And there's a piece for me that I've done a lot of reflecting on that. And I think that's a core part is, you know, if things happen, which sometimes they do, well, could we say that we've lived our best life? And uh, he definitely has done that since he experienced all of that trauma. So anyway, hope you enjoyed that. I look forward to welcoming you back in another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast very soon.